Commonwealth soldiers refuse leave to stay in the UK once their service is over. Russia's riot girls await their verdict. And the Royal Navy remembers the Second World War convoy to Malta. It's very important that uh, we, the Royal Navy, remain connected with our past. We were recognising uh, the achievements of the pedestal convoy. Thousands of lives lost, but to achieve a strategic end. Hello, I'm Glenn Mansell. It's emerged in the last week that the former Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, has written to the Immigration Minister asking him to reconsider the case of a Fijian former soldier fighting for the right to stay in the UK. Izumile Balawe served in the British Army for five years but was refused leave to remain in the country because he'd been disciplined for a fight with another soldier. He's now been given six months to try to overturn the decision. The charity Veterans Aid says there are dozens more foreign and Commonwealth veterans in a similar position and it's warned that the government may be breaching its own armed forces covenant. BFBS reporter James Hurst has been looking into this. James, what does Dr Fox's letter say? Well, it is specific to the case of Isimeli or Bali Balloway. Now, the reason he was refused the right to remain is because of disciplinary action, which was in front of a commanding officer, not a court-martial, but that is treated the same way as a criminal conviction when it comes to citizenship applications. Now, Dr Fox raises the fact that, uh, for example, Mr Balloway has uh, a British wife and children in this country, but he does also end on a wider point by saying to the uh, Immigration Minister Damien Green, when the public sees some thoroughly unpleasant individuals allowed to remain in the UK, but those willing to fight in the British Army being deported, they will justifiably begin to wonder where our priorities lie. But Veterans Aid say it's not just this one particular case. No, they say it has highlighted a much wider issue. The Chief Executive of the charity, Dr Hugh Milroy, told me they've had around 70 people in similar situations approach them this year. And what we've got is a situation here where internal discipline... Now, remember, millions of people get disciplined at work. They don't end up having to get deported or leave the country. You appear to, to some people, though, to be asking for veterans to be made a special case. Well, in the case of veterans who've come from abroad, we recruited them. They came here to work for us, to defend this nation, and they have done. It's an incredible story that we've taken thousands of people from all over the world and have joined in to help in the defence of this nation. And if this is the best we can do for them, then we should hang our heads in shame. James, what does the government say about this? Well, these decisions on leave to remain are a matter for the Home Office, specifically the UK Border Agency. Uh, in a statement to this week, they said to us that applications for citizenship from former members of our armed forces are considered in the same way as any other citizenship application, taking account of a range of factors, including unspent convictions. They do say they're reviewing all migration routes, including how criminal convictions affect immigration and nationality decisions. I think the point in this statement of particular interest to Veterans Aid, though, is this one. They say those with convictions should not generally be granted settlement or citizenship, but military offences with no civilian equivalent should not generally prevent a successful application. And I think that's the point that Veterans Aid are, are looking at and trying to get further discussed. And what bearing does the, the Armed Forces Covenant have on all this? Well, uh, Veterans Aid do, do believe this question of military service not disadvantaging people comes into play in these settlement decisions. 
disciplines, as, as you heard Hugh Milroy saying, you know, people get disciplined at work all the time and they won't be affected by it in civilian life. There is a very specific point they've also raised, though, about veterans who are in a period of appeal. That's where Bally, Balloway is right now. He's got six months, but he's not allowed to work or claim benefits in that time. Another veteran, Caden White, who's just been given two years' leave to remain and can now work, he spent 18 months in that same position, not being able to work or get benefits. No work, no everything. I'm not allowed to public funds, doctors, nothing. Literally, I didn't exist for 18 months. Basically, I'm supposed to stay here and starve and die. You're killing off me and my family. Now, Veterans Aid point to a specific section of the Armed Forces Covenant which states that members of the Armed Forces community, which includes veterans, should have the same access to benefits as any UK citizen, except where tailored alternative schemes are in place. Now, we've spoken to the MOD about this. They point out that the Covenant is for all government departments to deliver, including, for example, in this case, actually, Department for Work and Pensions. Uh, a spokesman told us that as part of a covenant commitment, they are working with the Home Office and Border Agency on settlement arrangements for non-British personnel serving in the British military. They say it's part of their ongoing commitment to rebuilding the Armed Forces Covenant now that it is got its principles enshrined in law. They're effectively saying, look, this is a work in progress. It takes time to deliver. There is an annual progress report from a government committee, and the next one of those is due before Christmas. BBS reporter James Hurst, thank you. Still to come, what's happening in the South China Seas and what does it mean for NATO? And the Royal Navy remembers the naval convoys that kept the people of Malta alive during the Second World War. Now, a verdict is expected on Friday in the trial of members of the Russian punk protest group Pussy Riot. The three women are accused of hooliganism on the grounds of religious hatred and face possible prison sentences of three years if found guilty. The group played a song attacking Russian President Vladimir Putin at the altar of Moscow's Christ the Saviour Cathedral. Uh, well, I'm joined now by Dr. Martin McCauley from the University College London, a BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Dr. McCauley, this has made headlines around the world, and even Madonna's shown her support to the group by having uh, their name written on her back during her latest show in Moscow. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Uh, basically, they're a pop group uh, and so on, and um, they're against Putin, they're very critical, they belong to the opposition and so on, uh, but not really in a political sense, it's mainly publicity. But one has to remember that Vladimir Putin is, he says, a religious person. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church plays a very important role now in Russia. Uh, it's, it's one of the backers of the regime. So therefore, if you go into this famous cathedral, uh, and sing a song like that, then a lot of people are scandalised. Uh, uh, Putin apparently pushed it, uh, that it would actually be put on trial, and uh, this would be a warning to everyone else not to criticise the Russian Orthodox Church and uh, not to uh, attack religion. And there's also the point that Islam is increasing in importance in Russia, so therefore the religious uh, questions and uh, pop music about religion and so on are now political. Do you feel that uh, President Putin was threatened by this? Uh, he felt that it was an insult and uh, he, is, uh, he took it personally. 
uh, and therefore they had to be punished. And apparently he was the one who, who pressed that. Uh, they've got to be very careful with the verdict because if it's a long sentence, uh, then the whole pop world uh, will in fact protest and the opposition in Russia will, will have a strong point. But many Christians in Russia believe they did something wrong and they should be punished in some way, symbolically or in reality. <laughs> Christopher, why do you think Putin's reacted the way he has? Oh, Putin has been under great, great, great pressure from a lot of people, uh, different people, uh, not just this lot, who incidentally, it's not a band like the Spice Girls or anything like that, it's a, they're performance art protesters. They wear blue balaclavas, for example, and, you know, they're, they're the sort of people that, from soapbox to actually protesting in front of the altar, because they say the church, as Martin says, the church is an important part of Russian society, but church and Putin are sort of hands together. What is happening at the moment, there are accusations from different groups in opposition society, and that doesn't mean, say, you're organised at opposition, uh, and that there is a complete breakdown of free and just society under Putin. Now, there wasn't, in fact, a free and just society anyway, but it is getting worse. And the more that he feels threatened, the worse it's likely to get. Uh, Paul McCartney's added his today. He's added his voice to this, you know, we'll back you, don't, 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 don't uh, worry, girls, we're, we're, we're in for you. But uh, the point is, tomorrow they will be sentenced, or three of them will be sentenced, the Pussy Riot... Uh, it could be that they'll go to a penal servitude camp three years. That's what they expect. Martin, you said that um, many Christians feel that uh, this this was an outrage uh, in Russia, but does Pussy Riot itself have uh, much support? Um, if you look at the opposition, the opposition see this as a weapon against Putin and against the Orthodox Church because uh, many of the opposition are atheists. Uh, and they don't like the role that Russian Orthodox Church is playing. Uh, it has a very important economic role uh, and, and it's the backbone, if you like, of the Putin presidency and so on. Uh, and uh, they would like the, the church to be weakened and so on. The, the, the church should stay out of politics and should really only concern itself with religion. But uh, uh, from the majority of people, because 70% of Russians say that they're Christians, they belong to the Orthodox Church and so on, and the vast majority of those think that that was an outrage. So therefore, in, uh, Putin and the judge, well, the judge will be instructed uh, how to how to uh, sentence them. They have to find some way where they're punished, but not too much. It'll be interesting now to see whether this prosecution against them will uh, completely suppress this type of thing, or will it spark more? No, you, you're absolutely right. There is this question, and I'll tell you the interest, most interesting thing to me anyway. If Pussy Riot had just done their act in front of the altar, which was pretty bad, and a lot of people, you know, if you, in, in their church, if they had just done that, and just gone away, hadn't been nicked, probably the protest would have meant absolutely nothing at all. And what, where the real breakdown is not between Putin and Pussy Riot, if you like, it is the local law enforcers who are making more of this necessary. So do you think we'll see more of these type of riots, or, or will it go away now, do you think? It's not going to go away. No, it's not going to go away. And somebody was saying to me, as long as Putin is there, it won't go away. And this is the great challenge. Never been, has he, Martin, been challenged like this before? Uh, the last year has seen more challenges to him than in the previous eight. Uh, because previously, if he, he came, became president in 2000. And if you like, he healed the nation. 
he brought it together. The Yeltsin, uh, the ten years of Yeltsin was seen as a disaster. Bre- Russia was breaking apart. Uh, Putin was a strong man. He brought it together, and he was respected for this. And of course, the oil price boom was fantastic. Uh, uh, incomes doubled, and so on. And therefore, he was seen as, if you like, the holy savior of Russia. Uh, but now things have turned right round, uh, and since last December. There have been tremendous uh, a number of protests, but they're not coordinated. The opposition doesn't have a single leader. There's no charismatic leader, and there's no coherent message. The basic is, we're against Putin. All right, let's stay with Russia, but let's talk about its relationship with Syria. Earlier today, Russia told the United States that it favours a continued United Nations presence in Syria, saying a UN exit from the Middle Eastern nation would have serious negative consequences. The United States has said an unarmed UN observers should not remain in Syria beyond the August the 19th deadline, but that Washington is willing to consider an alternative UN presence in the country. Martin Corley, what do you make of that? Uh, Russia is in a, in a predicament because it's had a very close relationship with Syria for the last 50 years. It's armed the uh, Syrians. It's trained many of their officers and so on. Uh, and Syria is this ally in the Middle East. And it doesn't want to be pushed out. If, if the al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad, Alawite group fail and are pushed aside, then Russia's pushed out. So therefore, Russia will, in fact, do all it can uh, to uh, support the Assad diplomatically, uh, and presumably they're helping him in other ways. But they also have a formidable problem because there's about 150,000 Circassians, uh, Syrian Circassians, in uh, Syria who want to move back to Russia. They were expelled by the Tsars in the 19th centuries. There's tens of thousands of Chechens who want to move back to Russia. So Russia now is caught up in a situation where a lot of citizens, Syrian citizens, want to move back to Russia and so on and Russia would like to find a diplomatic solution to that. They don't want them all back. I suppose we've got to start thinking now about who's going to replace Kofi Annan as the UN Arab League peace envoy to Syria. Have we got anybody who's going to go into that job? Oh yeah. I mean they've got somebody lined up, Zaradi, of the Algerian. I mean he's got a big reputation. He's a Mr. Fix-It. That's fine. But they've delayed it. There was a meeting supposed to be last Sunday uh, of the Arab League, and don't forget the the, the peacemaker or the peace peace envoy is in fact an Arab League United Nations appointment, but that's on hold at the moment. There's a vote much later today in the United Nations where they'll be talking about it in the Security Council. The important thing there have been other developments. Now, for example, China, which has always sort of blocked things in in the Security Council. They're starting to make the peacemaker play. And so they've had an envoy from from Assad go to Beijing. He's been told by the Chinese, and listen, you've got to get talks going. The uh, Assad people are saying, look, you say we've got to get talks going, but what about the other guys? We've got seven different opposition groups actually fighting and killing us. Why shouldn't they be brought into this? Chinese are now saying, okay, we're going to be talking to them again. And it's almost as if... Um, China is being set up or setting itself up as sort of an ACAS, uh, somebody who will arbitrate in all this. And if that happens, it brings China right back into the good boy part of the Security Council, whereas before it had been cocked on the head, cocked on the head entirely.
And it would be a fundamental change in Chinese foreign policy because Chinese foreign policy until today is based on economic interests. Uh, China has not participated or tried to intervene domestically or in international uh, politics. They stay out of all that. Uh, they only look after their own economic interests, oil in Africa and so on. Now, for the, the first time, as a budding superpower, they're coming into the diplomatic arena and they're really big boys, they're really big players now. Can we explore the relationship between Russia and Syria? Why does why does Russia need Syria? Uh, Russia needs Syria uh, in as much that it's got its only Mediterranean base there. Uh, if you look at what's going on in Latakia, for example, um, that is very much enough Russian influence. The other thing is, if you go right back to the 19, 1970s, I think, Martin, when Russia was kicked out of Egypt, 76, I, th I think it was... Um, Russia has got to have, it sees, a place in the Middle East, especially if there's going to be any peace operation there, because it wants to be a, a, a guarantor. There's also the fact that China, in the meantime, keep coming back to China, is actually setting itself up there. It is buying up as much as the Middle East as it can. It's buying up the debts. So if you borrow money from a bank, you might actually <coughs> find you're having to pay the Chinese back. It's buying up the world. China is now the economic superpower. Every time you go to an African country which has got oil, it's got uh, uranium or it's, got, or it's got coal or whatever, you find the Chinese are bought into it in a big sort of way. And when they buy it, they buy themselves seats on the board. There are people who are saying the same thing is happening in the Middle East. Martin McCauley, uh, what is China's influence over Syria? Uh, China so far has basically stayed away from it. As I said before, their interests are really economic. Uh, there are a lot of investments in, in Syria uh, and a lot of Chinese technicians and so on in Syria. Uh, now they're beginning to look at the political uh, sphere because they can begin to play a role uh, uh, which is very, very important. There's one thing the Chinese don't want, that's UN military intervention. Uh, they don't want regime change by force which would strengthen the United States. Uh, because, uh, let's say, there was an uprising in Tibet, and a, lot of, a flood of Tibetan refugees went into India, and the Tibetans would then say, we must have UN intervention. Uh, if the UN intervened in Syria, it would be a precedent. And therefore, China will do everything in its power, which is formidable, uh, to prevent that happening. Uh, uh, but if you look at the relationship between China and Russia now, it's completely changing. If you look at it 30 years ago, Russia was dominant. Now, the Chinese economy is five times the Russian. Its defense expenditure is twice as much, and so on. Uh, and you can go on with these statistics endlessly. Uh, China is really replacing Russia now. Let's talk more about China, because not only are they uh, in the news for, for that particular subject, but also uh, for something closer to home. Uh, the country's involved in a diplomatic row over several disputed islands in the South China Sea. Uh, today, Japan has decided to deport Chinese activists who were arrested for landing on an island claimed by both Tokyo and Beijing. Fourteen Chinese activists were arrested on Wednesday after landing and raising a Chinese flag on the rocky, uninhabited isles. Martin McCauley, this isn't a recent development, is it? No, this has been going on for years. Uh, if you look, the, the spat between China and uh, Japan is, if you like, permanent. Uh, because these are two powers which, which always see uh, uh, things from a different angle. Uh, one of the reasons why these islands are in contention, if you go down to the South China Sea, uh, you find lots of the Spatley, uh, the Paracel and others, is that they were, um, if you like, claimed uh, by Britons. If you look at the names, uh, some of them are Spanish and Portuguese, Paracel, uh, Pescadores. You look at others, Spratly, Scarborough, 
uh, and others, the Irish, Irish, Scots, English and so on. Uh, and these islands uh, were under colonial rule, if you like. And then when the, uh, the uh, colonial powers left, it wasn't uh, who owned which islands was never resolved, unfortunately. So now, uh, the reason why these complications are developing now is because the Chinese are becoming more assertive, but also because Vietnam passed a law uh, uh, in August, stating that it owned the Spratleys and a lot of islands around there, and they also asked for international oil consortia to start uh, prospecting for oil and gas. So the Chinese reacted to that, uh, and they've updated uh, a place called Sansha, uh, which is going to rule over something like 2.5 million square kilometres. Uh, almost totally uninhabited, but they think there's oil and gas and, and uh, huge wealth there underneath. So therefore, uh, Vietnam, if you like, the Chinese would say Vietnam provoked us. Uh, the Philippines is also in contention, uh, Indonesia as well, and so on. All the literal states uh, in China, uh, in, in East Asia, have these conflicts, have these uh, territorial conflicts with China. It, uh, look at it this way. Look at it from a Chinese point of view. Just imagine the Cold War is still going on, right? And for other reasons, Russia has got, makes claims on the Channel Islands. And they make, even the Isle of Wight, or whatever. We get nervous. This is exactly the position of China. You start looking at it from the Americans, their influence in the region. You look at it from what uh, some people were once their allies, and they are becoming powerful. China is not paranoid. But China is very agitated about its own security. A something like 17% increase over the past four years in its defence spending. It's starting to spread its wings, and that's important in every effort. In, in land forces, rocket forces, uh, submarines, aircraft carrier development, it's doing that. It's not just the oil in all these, in, in, the, in the South China Sea. It's far more than that. Just think of it in terms of, every time you talk, think about China, Think of it in terms of the Chinese point of view, not just the fact that we're sort of friends with Washington, so we start putting a load of gear, a load of uh, military assets in, in, into, the, into the Pacific. So the, uh, uh, the Americans are concerned? The Americans are very concerned. What the Americans are saying now is that they're going to uh, shift even more. They've always had their fleet there, but they're going to shift even <laughs> further into the Pacific and also the China region, with, to some extent, the permission of the Japanese. So much so that the Americans are saying to the European members of NATO, listen, you've got to look after the Eastern Atlantic. We're not pushing off, but we're putting a lot of our assets, our assets, into that Pacific region. And the Chinese look at it and they find that perhaps that is an aggressive action. Yes, well, and, so, so and Martin, Washington, uh, they say that they're going to defend freedom of, freedom of navigation. Uh, and freedom of navigation means to the Chinese, you're encroaching on our territory. You, you're, in you, you're in fact saying, we don't own what we own. You, you can actually have your, uh, any, any ship you like sailing through there and so on. So therefore, it's a confrontation. The Americans now have bases in Darwin and northern, northern Australia, which they're building up. They've also got one in Perth and Western Australia and the islands off there and so on. Uh, so that from a Chinese, if you're a Chinese uh, defense analyst in Beijing, you begin to see uh, uh, a string of pearls. American pearls all round you. Ma Martin, where does NATO fit into all this? NATO is very important because NATO's reach now actually goes to the Pacific as well. Uh, now, if Russia has a permanent representative in Brussels, 
uh, and Russia is nothing like the power that China is, so why shouldn't China have? It makes more sense to have re- uh, a Chinese representative and to have relations with China and so on. The Americans, if you look at the American relations with the Chinese military, they find them very difficult because the Chinese are very unsure of themselves uh, and it's very hard to talk to them. Uh, and But it's a, it's a, it's a long-term relationship and uh, gradually you'll have to confront or you come to learn and understand the Chinese because they are the rising superpower. This is BFBS Sigrep. Now, the first Sea Lord has been visiting Malta this week. Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope was there to honour a naval convoy which helped save the island during the Second World War. But he was also there to thank Malta for its recent help in the Libya campaign. BFBS's Tim Cooper reports from Valletta. To the British military, Malta was a strategically important base, midway between its naval ports of Gibraltar and Alexandria. But Axis naval strength had prevented resupply convoys reaching the island for four months. Something had to be done, or surrender would become inevitable. So Operation Pedestal set sail. A tiny dot crowded in by hostile bases. Malta badly needing supplies. Vital supplies, oil and guns and ammunition, as well as reinforcements of manpower. Trudging east from Gibraltar on a voyage of a thousand miles. A newsreel of the time describing Pedestal, a convoy made up of 14 British and American merchant ships, escorted by 20 Royal Navy destroyers, seven cruisers, four aircraft carriers and two battleships. At Tat Lies on Valletta's Grand Harbour, a service of commemoration is underway, recognising the achievements of that convoy 70 years ago. Seven of a dwindling band of veterans who served have made the journey here to be thanked at the highest level. Malta's Prime Minister is joined by UK First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope. It's very important that uh, we, the Royal Navy, remain connected with our past. We were recognising the achievements of the pedestal convoy, thousands of lives lost, but to achieve a strategic end, to get enough stores through here to Malta. Although successful, just five of the 14 merchant ships made it through and four Royal Navy vessels were also lost. A salute is made to the 400 men who perished on the journey. One of the veterans here is Mac McNeil. This is rather moving. It took me back a bit. I was a 16-year-old lad then. It brought back a lot of memories. Some not good. Not only was Malta vital for the British, the Germans could see its importance. They wanted the island to be a resupply base for Rommel in the deserts of North Africa. Because of the Operation Pedestal success, Britain could use Malta to disrupt the existing German supply routes, ultimately helping Hitler lose the war in the desert. Good to see you. Delighted to be here. Day two of the first Sea Lord's visit begins at the Malta branch of the Royal British Legion, meeting Maltese veterans, many of whom served in the Royal Navy when the country was a British colony. Men like Walter Galdis. The Royal British Legion, Royal Navy Association, is to help the ex-servicemen. We've got many, hundreds of them on the island. Old people will look after them. The walls of the Legion are lined with photos of the past, and this visit so far has concentrated on history. But Malta as a location for the British military is very much a modern concern too. During the Libya campaign, Malta hosted numerous Royal Navy ships. The little island was at the strategic centre of things once more. Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope again. It's quite right and proper that I uh, am here recognising the enormous support 
that the Island of Mortal uh, gave uh, to enable us to uh, uh, engage in the Libya campaign in the way we did, both in terms of port usage for our warships and airfield usage for our aeroplanes. Britain's maritime involvement in operations off Libya has been viewed as highly successful, but it needed a convenient base to resupply its ships. As Rommel found to his cost during the Second World War, Malta was the only viable candidate. We would have done a business very differently if Malta hadn't provided that level of support and they deserve recognition and thanks for doing so. To conclude his visit to the island, Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope meets the crews of two more British ships visiting, HMS Middleton and HMS Pembroke, en route home from the Gulf after three years away. This visit has paid homage to the past, but also shown how the Royal Navy's relationship with Malta has been reawakened after the Libya campaign. And with continued uncertainty in the Middle East and North Africa, the island may again be needed at some point soon. Tim Cooper for Sitrep in Valletta. And uh, Christopher, it just goes to prove, you know, how, how that special that relationship was with Malta during those days. And hopefully it is being reawakened now. Yeah, I mean, as t- Tim, Tim's saying there that it, was, it had this great history uh, and it may be, it's maybe been reawakened by, by Libya. Um, don't forget Malta, things have changed entirely. Malta now, good communication base. Uh, good for almost ev- uh, everything as a jumping off point but when nobody's drawing them into any new defence agreement tell you what it reminds me there it, it reminds me that there are a lot of people still around who were in the Navy the Navy that used to go around the world uh, and stay around the world and not just on a group deployment or anything like that um, there were bases in Singapore, Hong Kong uh, Gibraltar still uh, Malta, etc and I mean, just in personal, I remember my uncle uh, telling me they went off on a group, on a deployment. He was deployed to the Far East, two years away, unaccompanied in his ship. Ships painted white. Um, It's the old idea. Do you know in uh, Last Night of the Proms, they sing Britannia rules the waves? Rules that Britannia rules the waves. Well, in fact, it wasn't written like that. It was written Britannia rule. It was God's command. Now, I know the Navy does most things right, but in the old days it used to obey God as well and go around and, and rule the waves. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I wonder how, in a decade's time, will there will be saying similar things like that i tell you what it reminds me, though. Let's not forget where Gibraltar is. It's at the mouth of the Mediterranean. We certainly didn't forget that when the Libya operation was going on. Extraordinarily important. Well, thinking about uh, those uh, those locations in the Mediterranean and uh, thinking about the future, can you see ever, there ever being a point where those those other bases are, are cut? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's the facility that will be cut and the supply of them reduced in size. But some of them won't go. Falklands won't go. Jib won't go. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Dr. Martin McCauley and, of course, Christopher Lee. You can join the debate on Twitter by following us at BFBS Sitrep. Do join me again next week for, for me now, Glam Ansel. Goodbye. BFBS Sitrep.